Thanks for coming to this study. You know, this is something I've had an interest in for a while. It's something that uh, God's been doing in my heart. And uh, so hopefully in the next four weeks, we're going to talk about the nature of hell. We're going to talk about the nature of heaven. And we're also going to, if we have enough time, we'll talk about uh, the nature of the intermediate state, which is the time between my death and the time when Jesus comes back, right? So that's the intermediate state, and we'll talk about that as well. So as I begin tonight, though, I want to, I want to ask for, I want to share four things with you, and kind of like they're going to be groundwork for this study, all right? And the first one is this. What I'm going to share with you uh, tonight is, is different than uh, what you've been taught for most of your life. I think that'll be true for most of you, maybe not all of you, but for most of you. Uh, so because of that, what I'm, what I'm going to ask you to do beginning tonight is this. I'm going to ask you to listen for understanding rather than right off the cuff to refute everything I've got to say, right? So I know a part of you is going to want to do that, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. So we're, we're going to devote at least two weeks to the topic of hell, all right? And so you're going to have an opportunity to refute what I'm saying, etc. But tonight, what I'd really like to ask of all of you is to listen for understanding, okay? Um, some of you were here during the, the Wednesday night theology we did back in the fall, and I showed a picture that if you look at it, it looks like a rabbit or it looks like a duck, and depending on how you see it, you see the rabbit or you see the duck. Now, after you've looked at it for a while, you can usually see both of them. You can see the rabbit uh, and the duck. And uh, so what, what I've come to understand is that a lot of us see a duck in Scripture and other of us see a rabbit in Scripture, not just about this subject, but on all kinds of subjects in the Bible, right? And uh, so what I'm asking tonight is that you try to see the rabbit. You, let's just call the rabbit what you already know, okay, what you already believe. What I want to ask you to do to, tonight is to try to see the duck, okay, to try to see the duck that I'm going to be sharing. Uh, number two... I want you to know I've changed my thinking. I've changed my thinking, and what I mean by that is I, I no longer believe what I used to believe about the nature of hell. I have changed, and I believe the Bible teaches something much more clearly, and I'm hopefully going to try to convince you of that. And you may not be convinced. When I'm finished, you may not be convinced. You may continue to believe what you've always believed, and that'll be quite all right, okay? But, but I've changed my mind. I've changed my mind. I want to tell you a little story, a personal story. Some of you have heard this, but when I was in college, I wasn't following Jesus, but I was in a religion class, and I had to, I had to write a paper, and I chose hell. I have no idea why I chose hell. I have no idea really much about anything about that paper, except that I got an A on it, and my conclusion in the paper was that hell was not eternal conscious torment, but that hell was death, okay, or annihilation. And I got an A on the paper, and, and I was really proud of that. And, and then at some point subsequent to that, I began to follow Jesus. And one of the first things that I did as a follower of Jesus was I ripped up my paper, even though I got an A on it. I ripped it up because it's out, it was out of bounds, right? It was, that's not what Christians believe. And so I ripped up, uh, I ripped up my, uh, you know, my paper uh, back then. But I want to tell you that... Ever since then, and maybe even before then, I've always philosophically, now listen to me, I've always philosophically struggled with the nature of hell. And, and let me give you three reasons why that's true, okay? I struggled because, one, in Micah 6.8, God says he has shown us, you know, what he desires of us. And one of those things is to do justice, right? And so I would look at eternal conscious torment, and I would say, God, 
that doesn't seem just to me. So I struggled philosophically with eternal conscious torment for that reason. Another reason I struggled with it was because in the Old Testament, God's grace said, you will only give an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. In other words, if somebody hurts you, you are only allowed to exact a penalty that is equivalent to the thing that was done to you. You weren't allowed to take revenge. And so somebody kills your son on purpose or on accident, you weren't allowed to go in there and kill everybody in their family. It was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And eternal conscious torment, philosophically, didn't seem like an eye for an eye. It seemed like a, a whole lot greater penalty than, uh, than what I thought was deserved. And again, this is just Jimmy, what I thought des was deserved by, by our sin. And the third thing was what Jesus taught us to do in the New Testament, which is to love our enemies, right? And, and please don't misunderstand, uh, misunderstand what I'm going to say here because, I mean, I think God's justice is, is, is still loving his enemies. I really do. I, I think God's justice is flows out of his love for us, and flows out of his love for mankind. Um, but, you know, eternal conscious torment did, uh, did not seem to be loving God, God loving his enemies. So philosophically, I, I struggled. I struggled with that. Uh, hell, in my estimation, violated, uh, violated those three things in my, in my consciousness or in my heart. However... I believed in eternal conscious torment. I believe that that's what the Bible taught about, about hell. And because I believe that, and because I was committed and am committed to the inerrancy of Scripture, if you don't know what that is, that is a doctrinal view that when God gave us the Word of God, He did so without error, so that we can trust the Word of God. So in other words, we can't dismiss it as saying, well, this part's wrong over here. This isn't what God said, and this part is. So I was an inerrantist. I've been an inerrantist since I began to follow Jesus. It was a, it was a commit, and I've said this to our church family, uh, you know, inerrancy is a, it's a faith after affirmation that we make, okay? It's something we believe by faith, but I believed that, and I still believe that. So because of that, I, you know, I accepted eternal conscious torment as what God was teaching in the Bible. John Stott, who was a renowned British evangelical in the, in the last century, in fact, one of the greatest uh, Christians of the last century, Time Magazine called him one of the most, uh, 100 most influential people, uh, in the world, and uh, th this guy, John Stott, I can't, I can't overstate his impact on the evangelical church, right? And, and this is what John Stott said about hell. He said, and I quote, I find the concept intolerable and do not understand how people can live with it, talking about hell now, without either carterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain. But our emotions are a fluctuating, unreliable guide to truth and must not be exalted to a place of supreme authority in determining it. As an evangelical, my question must be and is not what my heart tells me, but what does God's word say? And in order to answer this question, we need to survey the biblical matter afresh and open our minds, not just our hearts, to the possibility that the scripture points in a direction of annihilationism, which I'll define these terms in a little bit, uh, that and that eternal conscious torment is a tradition which has, has to yield to the supreme authority of scripture. And so that's what's happened to me. My understanding of hell has yielded to the scripture and I have changed in what I, uh, I, I see things differently. I've changed in what I believe. Number three, uh, what I'm going to share with you is the minority view. 
Okay, uh, there are less Christians that believe what I'm going to share with you than believe in eternal conscious torment. And eternal conscious torment is the traditional view, and it's been the view of the church since Augustine, since probably around 450 A.D., up until even now, right, it's the traditional view of the church. Most Christians believe that the nature of hell is eternal conscious uh, torment. Now, I, I, don't want, I don't want that to cause you to somehow not listen to me because there are a number of church fathers from the early days uh, of the church who, by their writings, did not affirm eternal conscious torment, but, but affirmed conditionalism. And that's, that's the term for what I'm going to be sharing with you tonight. Um, they, they affirmed conditionalism. Now, granted, it was, it was probably less of them than there were of the others, but quite honestly, so many of the church fathers are just quoting Scripture. So it begs the point, what did they believe when you just quote Scripture? You follow me? In other words, the, the whole argument that I'm going to share with you tonight is what does the Word of God teach? Well, if you just quote Scripture, then you're not really making a statement about what you believe the Scripture actually is trying to say. Okay? Everybody followed that? All right. So um, my, my, this view is the minority view, but it was held by some of the early church fathers. And, uh, and, and so probably most of us in this room believe in credo-baptism. We believe that baptism should be administered to people who have put their faith in Jesus and not, we don't believe in pedo-baptism, which is the baptism of, of little infants. Most of us don't affirm that. But probably from about the year 250 A.D. up until the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, no one believed in credo-baptism. Everyone believed in, in pedo-baptism. Okay, it was, it was the, the church believed it was God's way of dealing with original sin, and nobody believed that until the Protestant Reformation. So we have, up until the year 1500, 1,250 years of the church affirming infant baptism and, until the church corrected itself, okay? Many of you in this room uh, tonight probably uh, would affirm the, the, the central position of Israel uh, as a nation in God's redemptive work right? Well, that didn't come about till 1850. Prior to 1850, no Christians believed that. But in 1850, somebody put that forward, and most American Christians now believe that Israel is at the center of God's redemptive work. Again, my, my point is simply to say to you that the church can get it wrong, get things wrong, and change its position, you know, uh, somewhere along the line if the Word of God, you know, demands it. And, uh, and I, think that, I think the Word of God demands this change, uh, as, as we'll see as we go along. Number four, the things that we'll talk about tonight are secondary issues. In our church, and I know we have some guests here tonight, but in our church, we believe uh, unity in the essentials. We believe there are certain things that are absolutely essential, and we have unity in those. We believe there are things that are secondary, uh, and, and they're non-essential, and we call for grace in those. And we say whether, whatever the thing is, love needs to prevail in the way we treat every person, not, not just people within our church family, but everyone. And, and that's a good word for us in, in a day when, when our America is changing and culture is changing. You know, our, as followers of Jesus, the way we treat and deal people should deal with people who very much disagree with us and who very much are trying to change the things that we have held to and believed as a nation forever, we should still treat them. There should be grace about how or love and how we treat those folks. So that applies uh, to this as well. Now, having said that, though, that doesn't mean that 
that the things that we're going to talk about are not important. I believe they're super, super important. And, and i got to tell you, nothing in the last two decades of my life have excited me more than what I'm going to share with you tonight. Uh, and it's really kind of just, this is just one thing. And, and again, we're going to spend a couple of nights on this subject, but, but these things have led to, to me looking at so many other issues in the Word of God. And, and I am probably, and Ann, Ann just walked in, and she can attest to this, that in my Christian life, the, the last few years have been some of the most exciting times, really, since I was first born again and began to follow Jesus, and everything was exciting, and everything was, everything was passionate back then, and, you know, and then you kind of, I think you kind of, we, we have a tendency to to just sort of fade off into lethargy, you know. But uh, So the last few years have been really exciting for me. So, so what I'm going to share with you, it's very, very important. It's not that it's not important. However, it, it is not something that I believe should divide Christians at all, okay? So, all right, now I've said that. So I'm going to start this, this study uh, for the next four weeks. I'm going to start it on hell because in the progression of my thinking, this is, this is where it began for me. Now, there are evangelicals, what I've learned, see, I did not know this, okay? What I've learned is that evangelicals actually hold, and if you don't know what an evangelical is, let me define that. An evangelical is someone who follows Jesus, believes the evangel, believes the good news, they follow Jesus, and, and they are committed to the Word of God. That's really what an evangelical is, all right? We're committed to the Word of God. We believe that Jesus died for our sins. Uh, we believe that a salvation is found in no other name but His, and, and so that's what an evangelical is. Okay, so evangelicals who hold to the Word of God actually hold to three views about, about hell. I did not know that. I went to seminary, everyone. I went to seminary, and, and I was not taught but one view of hell. Now, there was mention that they were others, but they were dismissed with the wave of a hand as being unbiblical. And then there were proof texts were given. This is, what, this is what the verse says, and those things are just simply not true. But I was not taught them in the sense of, from a perspective of someone who's, who's seeking to help me see the duck, if you would, okay, versus the rabbit. Everybody understand my metaphor? Because I'm going to use that metaphor a lot, all right? So they, they, uh, they helped me. Uh, I mean, so, so nobody in seminary helped me see the rabbit and the duck. They just didn't. And so when, when some of these things, I began to learn some of these things, it was like, why didn't anybody, why didn't anybody ever share any of this with me? Not, not that it, I, I think I would have changed years ago had somebody shared with me the, the things I'm going to share with you tonight or, or begin to share with you tonight. I think I would have changed years ago, but no one ever did. And we have a tendency to do this. Let me chase, let me chase this kind of tangent for just a second. You know, so we grow up, and we, be, we become a Christian, and we grow up in a church, and, and usually that church has its own, um, its own position on things. Like, say, if you grew up Pentecostal, you grew up in a Pentecostal church, right? So, and your daddy and your mom are Pentecostal, and your church is Pentecostal. You're going to be taught all the Scripture from a Pentecostal perspective, all right? Now, if you grow up in a non-Pentecostal church, you're going to be taught things from a non-Pentecostal perspective, all right? Now, what happens is that, and, and what we all do is we proof text one another. Here's my text for why Pentecostalism is true. Here's my text for why Pentecostalism isn't true. And so we grow up in this kind of vein. And so then God calls you into ministry like me. And so you feel like God wants you to be in vocational ministry and you go off to seminary. Guess where you go to seminary? 
You don't go to a seminary that, that you don't go to a Pentecostal seminary. You go to a, a non-Pentecostal seminary who will, then, who will then tell you why what you've been taught your whole life is right. And no one ever, no one ever seeks to explain things to help you see the, the rabbit and the duck so you can then say, wow, you know, one of these, this is what I, I was taught the rabbit my entire life, but man, the duck is so much bolder, right? I really see the, the duck in the scriptures so much more than the rabbit. And we don't, we don't have that opportunity. I told a young man just the other day, I said, you live in a generation that is so exciting because, I mean, with the click of a mouse on Google, you can go out and listen to some of the greatest preachers from all these different perspectives. Men who love the Word of God. Please don't, please don't misunderstand me. I'm talking about men who love the Word of God, right? You can go out and listen to them, and you can listen to them explain their, their position. Now, I could have done that. When I was in my 20s, I could have done that. But I would have had to go, go to the library, and I would have had to find books, right? But here's another thing. I, it would have been hard to even know where to look when I was young. Whereas now, today, some of these young men, I mean, they have all kinds of opportunities to, to listen to people expound the scriptures in ways that I didn't, I didn't have. And so that, that's a great, oh, I've done gone talking, I forgot to do. My view is the minority view, and, uh, and, and these, are secondary, these are secondary issues. All right, so let me, let, me, um, let me talk about the three views of hell, all right? The three views of hell, the first one is the traditional view, and it's also known as eternal conscious torment. And this is the view that I grew up with. It's the view that probably most of you grew up with. It's probably the view that most of you hold to, even to this, even to this day. I probably don't have to define it, but uh, I will define it more in just a moment. So I'm just going to leave that as it is. It's pretty self-explanatory. The, the, the second view of hell is called conditional immortality. And the conditional immortality view is also known as annihilationism. Okay, and this is the view that I hold to now. And again, I, I will define this in much greater detail in just a few moments. Now, the third, the third view is Christian universalism. Uh, that didn't go. Christian universalism view, and this is alt, also known as ultimate reconciliation. Now, unfortunately, I'm going to do what was done to me in seminary. I'm almost going to dismiss this view with the wave of my hand as, uh, as, as not being, uh, you know, as not even really want to spend a lot of time there. But, but as I was working on this, I want to at least help you try to understand the things from their perspective. Again, now, now Christian universalist is somebody who says the Bible teaches that hell is going to be remedial. All right, that hell is actually going to be God reconciling all mankind to Himself. All right, and and so they would use basically their their argumentation would you know how to take notes on this? It would be God is love, First John uh, four eight, uh, Colossians one nineteen through twenty. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him through Him and through Him through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So the Christian universalist would say God's intent is to reconcile all men, all things to himself. Uh, when he has done this, this is 1 Corinthians 15, 28, it says, when he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. So again, you kind of have to read that in greater context, but in the context of 1 Corinthians 15, it's, 
it's, it's like Paul is saying that God, all things are going to be subject to Christ. All things are going to be under Christ. And then Christ is going to submit himself to the Father. And, and we'll talk more about what that picture paints in a little bit. But the Christian Universalist says, you see, all things will be under Christ one day. And the fourth thing that they would point to, this is kind of their, their, their positive case for Christian Universalism, would be, for God has bound all men over to disobedience, so that he may have mercy on them all, Romans 11.32. And so, so the Christian Universalist says, you know, there, there's a positive biblical case for this idea that God is going to save everybody and hell is remedial. And Christian Universalism, it really relies, uh, or it relies upon this presumption that there is this post-mortem opportunity for repentance, Okay. By post-mortem, I mean after death, that there's going to be an opportunity for people to, to get right with God. And they, they would point to Philippians chapter 2, where it says that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I would look at that as a, as a conditionalist or as a traditionalist. We would look at that and we'd say, yes, they're going to bow the knee. But they're not going to bow the knee in submission as in reconciliation. They're going to bow the knee as in judgment, right? They're going to bow the knee. But the Christian universalist would say, no. They're going to bow the knee in reconciliation, and they would point to the four verses that, uh, that, I, just, uh, that I just shared with you. Now, I'm really not going to spend any time here because I think the Bible is so replete that God's judgment is eternal, that, that the punishment of sin is eternal. And so God is going to eternally punish people. So if God's going to eternally punish people, there just cannot be. They're, they're, I, could, I could give you all kinds of arguments against Christian universalism, I'm just going gonna, gonna to dismiss it with the wave of my hand right now, okay? Um, and I'm sorry for that. But, that. but that is the reason why they believe that. But one more thing about this before I leave this subject and move on to the subject at hand, and that is that, that Christian universalists are different than universalists, okay? You need to understand that. So how many of you have seen a Unitarian church, you know, or, or, or you know, you know the, the Unitarians and the Universalists and all that kind of... A Christian Universalist is different than that. A Christian Universalist says that God, that Christ is God, and that Jesus died for our sins, the sins of the world. And so when Jesus died for the sins of the world, he was dying for the sins of all men. And because God is love, because God's intent is to reconcile all men to himself, God is going to do it through Christ. God is going to reconcile all men to himself. Hell is going to be remedial, remedial and he's going to do that, and he's, but he's, it's through Christ. I mean, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus died for our sins. A universalist says, God is love. All religions lead to God. They're all the same. There, there's, you know, Jesus, you know, basically all religions are, the, are some sort of um, fabrication of men. There, there is no reliance upon Christ. So there is a difference there. Did you all see it? I don't want to spend a lot more time there, but I, I do want you to understand that Christian Universalists are not people who are simply seeking to dismiss the Bible, though I think they have to really almost dismiss a lot of verses. Um, but they are trying to say they believe the Bible teaches that God in the end is going to reconcile all men uh, to uh, himself. All right, so having dismissed that with a wave of my hand, well, let's talk about the traditional view of hell and conditional immortality. All right. Traditionalism. I got four statements about traditionalism uh, here that I want to share with you uh, versus conditionalism, just so you kind of get the picture. Uh, in traditionalism, all men will one day stand in judgment before God. All men. And those who have died, that's everybody who's 
<laughs> this side of us, right? And it's going to be us if Jesus tarries. And everybody who comes after us if Jesus tarries. Up until the time Jesus comes, all of us are going to die. But, but traditionalism says that all of those men and women who have died will be resurrected to physical life. Their bodies will be recreated, and they will be restored to live again. And those who are alive at the time when, God, when Jesus comes back and judgment begins, those men and women will, in, you know, in their living state, will stand before the judgment of God. And I know, that, I know that's nuanced by you know, some of our eschatology, but so I'm kind of, I'm kind of saying this all day. Traditionalism says that all men will be raised and resurrected to life, and they will all be judged by God. Conditionalism agrees totally with that. Okay? The conditionalist position is exactly the same. All men will stand before God in judgment. Uh, all those who have died will be resurrected and restored to physical life in order to do so. Number two. Oops, I think I didn't hit this button. Not. Oh, yeah, I did. All right. Number two. Traditionalism... Uh, says that at the judgment of God, all men who are resurrected and made alive at that judgment will also be made immortal. They will never die. All men will be made immortal, and they will never die again. They will physically raise to life, never to die again. Traditionalists are very unambiguous about this in their language. Uh, John Gill said, the body that rises dies not again. John MacArthur says, every human ever born lives forever. Uh, G. Cool says, everybody lives forever. The unsaved, uh, Gary Habermas says, the unsaved will continue living in a state with a low quality of life. The Belgic Confession says, the evil ones will be convicted by the witness of their own conscience and shall be made immortal, but only to be tormented in the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, conditionalist... Uh, or conditionalism, on the other hand, says that men and women are not raised immortal. They are raised back to physical life, but they are not raised immortal. They do not believe that God gives physical immortality to all men. I think I didn't hit that enough, sorry. No, man, traditionalists, traditionalists believe that God is giving immortality to every person that's raised Conlicians do not believe that God is giving immortality to every man. We'll talk about when that happens. But no, we do not believe that God's giving immortality to every person. Okay? So I'll, I'll, I'll get there. Yes, I'm, that's what I'm going to end up saying. Number three, traditionalists believe men and women will be consciously judged at the judgment bar of God, and they will fully understand the glory of God and the righteousness of their judgment. There will be no ambiguity as to the reason for God's judgment and the decisions that he enacts on them at that moment. And so the traditionalist says that at the judgment, men will understand God's justice. They'll understand God's holiness. They'll understand God's penalty on them. Okay? Conditionalists fully agree with that. All men will be consciously judged by God, and they will understand the nature of their judgment, and they'll understand the reason why they are being judged and being sentenced. But here's where the big difference comes in, and I don't think I hit that enough. Conditionalist. I'm sorry, everybody. I'm not, I'm not used to doing both of these things. And then the fourth one, traditionalists teach... Our traditionalism teaches that the punishment of the lost or the damned will be to be cast into a place called hell, 
where hell is a place where lost people live forever in eternal conscious torment, having been raised immortal, humanly immortal, God will now torment or torture people forever in hell. Now, uh, and again, I really want to, you know, I'm really not trying to be emotional, but I really want to make sure that we're not just saying words and not getting this, okay? Because if you're a young earth creationist like I am, then the cosmos, you would say, is probably six to 8,000 years old, right? Uh, if you're an evolutionist, you say it's 14 billion years old. Um, you know, if you're somewhere in between, you probably say it's some other number, right? But regardless, here's my point. For, for the next 8,000 years, men will be tormented physically every day, forever and ever. And if evolutionists are right, and, and the earth were to be 14 billion years, then for the next 14 billion years, traditionalists believe that the punishment of sin is that God will continue to torment people every day for the next 14 billion years. And actually, it's kind of a moot thing because it's not just years, it's forever. It's it's. For all eternity, God is going to torment people, all right? Hell, in the traditional view, has had some refinement. Prior to the last half of the last century, everyone believed in eternal conscious torment, who believed in eternal conscious torment, which was really just about everybody, although in the 18th century, there was a great, in fact, uh, some writers were saying that traditionalism was, would die out because conditionalism was growing to such extent. I, I think, and again, I'm chasing a tangent here, but I think the reason why it died back down is because the, of the modernist the, the modernist uh, controversy that took place at the time where, where Christians were defending the Bible against liberals, you know, I, I think that's kind of what, what doused it at that time. But, but, but at, the, at the turn of the, the middle of the last century is where traditionalists began to change with regard to the nature of hell. It's still eternal conscious torment, but it's no longer that God is going to burn my body and not consume me. In other words, that I'm going to be a living person experiencing pain like I do now, and God's going to put me in fire, and he's going to burn me every day, but I'll not be consumed. And so I'll have the pain of being burned every day, but never being burned up, right? Trust uh, began to nuance that. And I think probably one of the greatest influences in that was C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis began to teach, and he said that the torment of hell was not fire, was not literal fire, so we have a literal conscious torment, but it's not literal fire. It's, it's literally isolation, separation into blackness and darkness and to be isolated in a place by yourself for all eternity. So for, for the rest of all of eternity, you would be somewhere by yourself in isolation. So the torment of hell would, would be uh, emotional torment, not so much physical torment. Uh, you know, I can remember so many times myself talking about the penalty of sin being separation from God, right? That I'm going to be separated somewhere from, uh, from God. So uh, most, most traditionalists today will still talk about the burning fire, but yet so many believe that the penalty is not burning fire, but rather emotional separation into emptiness and blackness. Everybody with me? Now, conditionalism here, this is where we, where we really differ. I hit the wrong button, sorry. Uh, conditionalists disagree, okay? Uh, we, or I believe, uh, conditionalism believes that the punishment of the lost will not be eternal conscious torment, but it will be death. You will die. Hell is a, pla hell is a real place. Conditionalists agree with that. Hell will be a real place. 
Um, but it's going to be a place of death and destruction, not eternal torment. And the last enemy destroyed in hell will be death itself. Death will be no more. The death that hell will bring about will be the cessation of life. The whole person, the body, the soul, if you would, will, will die. They will experience insensate death. They will never feel again. They will never know a conscious moment again. Their life will end even as we understand death, physical death. As we, even as we understand death ourselves today it is what a conditionalist believes will be the ultimate punishment of, of hell. The conditionalist doesn't disagree that there may be a level of torment that might accompany death in the same way that Jesus was tortured at his death. We talked about this a few weeks ago on Palm Sunday. Remember this? I, I mentioned the fact, you know, why did Jesus have to die the most horrendous death known to man at the time, right? And maybe the most horrendous death still um, uh, to die on a cross, you know, why did he have to be tormented that way? Why did he have to be tortured that way? You know, I'm not sure, but, you know, a conditionalist would agree that torment may accompany the death of the lost, okay? But the Bible clearly states, and, not, and I'm going to seek to prove this over the next couple of weeks, the Bible clearly states over and over and over, and we've just become immune to it, that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death, not torment, and certainly not eternal torment. The lost will not be raised, and this kind of goes back to what you said a minute ago. The, the lost will not be raised immortal, but rather they will be raised only to die again. This time, they will die eternally. There they will not be another resurrection. There will be never a time where they will come back to life again. They will never come back. They will die, and they will die eternally, never to live again. So now if you're tracking with me, you're probably saying, but what about this verse? And what about that verse? Because that's, you know, that's what I did when I began to, to listen. I said, well, what about this verse? And what about that verse? And so I want to promise you, we're going to get to all of those verses. In fact, next week, what I'd like to do is do nothing, but let's just look at the verses in the Bible. And let's look at them how a traditionalist would understand them, and I'm going to show you how a conditionalist would understand those verses. And, and so if you've got any really strong verses that you're like, there's just no way this can be anything but eternal conscious torment, then do me a favor, send that verse to me this week, just so I can make sure that I include it, that I include it in our talk next, next Wednesday, okay, if you want to come back. Um, but um, so... Um, where was I? So, so we, we talk about verses, but what I like to do for the rest of my time, and, and maybe it won't even take up the whole hour, I don't know, but what I'd like to do is, is I'd like to show you a positive biblical case for what I'm sharing with you for, for this idea of conditionalism. I want to show you a positive biblical case. I'm not going to necessarily deal with any particular verses, although I will mention some. I'm not, I'm not going to try to interpret this verse or that verse or what about this or what. I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to give you four foundations, if you would, biblical foundations that I think together, you know, make a really strong case for, for conditionalism. And uh, some of you, I've shared some things with some of you who've wanted to listen, and I'm going to use some of the things that, that you may have heard already, uh, but, but I want to try uh, to build a positive case for this. And so again, let me go back to my, the first thing I asked y'all, which was, you know, just try to understand this case. You might not agree with it, but try to understand the case that I'm going to make, okay? So here we go. Yes, sir.
I said that, that traditionalism says that at the judgment of God, men will understand. They will consciously be judged by God to understand the glory of God's judgment, to understand the unrighteousness and the righteousness of their own condemnation. They will, they will clearly understand and know that. And I said conditionalists absolutely agree with that. We, we believe, I believe that, that at the judgment of God, men will understand their judgment and they'll understand why God is righteous. They'll understand where they rejected the revelation of God. Romans, and again, maybe I've got to be careful not to go down a rabbit trail, but, but Romans 1 says that the, the nature of God is, is, is visible in creation. I mean, his mighty power, his persona, his creativity, he as creator, it's revealed in creation. And so at the judgment bar of God, all men will be out without excuse because they did not respond to whatever light they had. They, they're not going to be judged because they had not heard about Jesus. They're going to be judged because they, had not, they did not respond in faith to the light that they received, right? And, and, and so Romans 1 tells us that, that they'll be judged on that. But anyway, at the judgment, the, the third point I'm saying is that traditionalists and conditionalists agree that at the judgment of God, all men will understand the righteousness of their judgment. He'll understand, we'll understand the glory and the righteousness of God's judgment. We'll understand the reason why we are being judged. Okay, those of us that know Christ, we understand the reason why we will not be judged because Christ took our judgment. But but for the, they'll understand why they are being why they are being judged, and we all agree with that. Is that good? All right. So my positive case for conditionalism tonight is is going to be built on four on four platforms. And so let me just kind of here's the first one. The first one is the Bible's vision of eternity. And I'm going to start here because in some ways I think this is maybe the the weakest of the four things that I'm going to share with you, okay? But um, again, th this, is not like, this is not like each thing I'm going to share with you is a link in a chain. And so this one depends on this one, depends on this one, depends on this one. You break any of them and the chain is no good, right? That, that's, not what I'm, that, that's not what these four things are. These are actually four independent reasons why conditionalism is what the Bible is teaching or undergirding conditionalism, all right? And so they're, they're not dependent on one another. But nonetheless, I think this one might, might be the weakest of the four arguments. Uh, and in this one, what, what I'm going to seek to share with you is that the broad picture of the Bible paints this idea of eternity that where, where there will not be any more evil, where there will not be any more sin, where there will not be any more unrighteousness. Now, you know, just so you're, just so you're clear on this, I'm not saying that hell is so, so evil it can't exist. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm, I'm simply saying the Bible says that there's just not going to be any evil anywhere. That's, that's the picture the Bible, Bible paints. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10 says, And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Ephesians 1, 9 through 10. So God says there's coming a time in the future where all things will be brought under Christ. According to that verse, oh, I just said that. All right, here's another verse, Colossians 1, 19 through 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So all that's on earth or all that's in heaven, let me finish this statement and I'll take it, uh, 
according to those two verses, seems to say that all things will be reconciled to God. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> I do. I'm sorry. But, but actually, they're not, they're not great slides. They're just, <laughs> they're just going to be the, um, the, the, the main heading. I'm sorry. So, and, and, you know, if anybody's interested, I'll be glad to share my notes with you afterwards. So if you're, if you're ever interested in them, I'll share them with you. Okay? So, uh, so the picture seems to be from Colossians and Ephesians that there's coming a day where all things will be reconciled to God and all things brought, brought under Christ. Now, it seems, it seems to me logically, and I'm a very logical person, as, as I know a lot of you are as well, but it seems to me those verses afford two possibilities for the future. One of them is Christian universalism, all right? That God's going to reconcile all men to himself one day through a, through a remedial hell or whatever. Or the other possibility that, that all evil will be done away with. All sin will be gone. All, all, all unrighteousness will have died, will, will be no more, will cease to be. It seems those verses seem to paint that sort of picture. Here's some more. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28. This is the context of the verse I quoted earlier. Then, then the end will come, and he hands over the kingdom to, the, to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under his feet, so that God maybe all in all. Here's what, here's what Paul is saying happens at the resurrection of the dead. At the, re, at, the, at the final resurrection, Paul says, all of God's enemies will be no more. Even death will be no more. It'll all be under Christ, and Christ will be the sum of all things. And the word that he uses there when he says the sum of all things is an accounting term, and it's basically that all things will be zero in Christ. It'll all be summed up to be, it'll come out to be zero in Jesus, right? Now, in the traditional view, uh, it's, it's just the opposite. In eternity, there will always be a place where the enemies of God are always being tormented. Now, I did, I did read uh, where, where sin is always going on. Many traditionalists, I mean many traditionalists, uh, seeking to make hell just, make this suggestion. I mean, you, if you go out and search this, you'll see it. You know, they say that in hell, men and women continue to sin against God. And so they continue to sin against God, so God's continuous torment of them is justified because they're, continuous, they're continually sinning in hell. All right? So the picture there is, and again, in a traditionalist, in, in, well, anyway. So, so the picture there is that over here somewhere in eternity, forever, there's this dualism going on. All things are summed up in Christ, but over here is this place where men and women are still sinning against God and God is still tormenting them, okay? That, in my mind, in my estimation, it goes against the, the, the biblical vision that God paints of the future where all evil will be done away with and all the enemies of God will be destroyed, his words, and all will be brought under Christ, all summed up to zero in Christ and be made under Christ. Now, uh, and again, I wasn't going to do this, but I will just tell you, I read, you know, how does a traditionalist answer that? Well, a traditionalist, traditionalist says, yes, this is going on over here, but that's still under Christ. And so all things are summed up in Christ. And so this is, yes, going on over here, but it's still, still under Christ. But, but that seems to contradict to me the picture that Paul uh, is painting, namely Paul in, uh, actually all Paul, Colossians, Ephesians, and, uh, and Corinthians. 
Um, in fact, you know, I know this wouldn't be true for, for any of us today, but in years gone by, Thomas Aquinas, uh, and not just Thomas Aquinas, Isaac Watts, who wrote the great hymn that we sing all the time, um, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, right? Uh, Thomas Aquinas, Isaac Watts, said that in, in God's heaven, we will rejoice in seeing the damned. And so Thomas Aquinas said, in order that the happiness of the saints may be more delightful to them, that they may render more copious thanks to God for it, they are allowed to see perfectly the sufferings of the damned, so that they may be urged to all the more to praise God. The saints in heaven know distinctly all that happens to the damned. So the picture that Thomas Aquinas is painting is, is, is not that all the enemies of God have been destroyed, but that we're actually going to take joy in looking over there and seeing the enemies of God being tormented. Isaac Watts said, what bliss will, and I'm sure this was a song, what bliss will fill the ransomed souls when they in glory dwell to see the sinner as he rolls in quenchless flames of hell. So I just believe those pictures are two vastly different pictures of, of, of what God paints for the future. And, and, and so the first, the first, if you would, foundation for, for conditionalism, this, this biblical support, would be, would be the picture that God paints uh, of eternity. Uh, I have more in my notes here. I don't know whether to... No, I'm just going to skip that. Um, I'm just going to read my notes. The New Testament anticipates a future restoration of creation in which there is no cause for divine regret. Everything that lives will be under Christ in his kingdom. All right, number two. Number two, the Bible's promise of immortality. And from here on out, I think the next three arguments are very strong. But uh, this one, this one is, is one of the strongest to me. Scripture consistently teaches that human beings are mortal and will not live forever unless God grants them, that was, your, that was your statement earlier, unless God grants them immortality. Immortality will be granted uh, to the saved, but it will be withheld from the lost. Whoever, therefore, is without Christ will not live forever. So let's start back in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, when God creates humanity in his own image, he says, we, we read that he, breathed, he created them from dust, and then he breathed into them this breath of life, and the, and the creature became a living being. So there's a question there. Okay, so in that state, was man mortal or immortal at that point? Now, Dr. Glenn Peoples says he was immortable. <laughs> I like that, actually. He's, he was immortal. He, he, uh, he had the capability of becoming immortal, or he had the capability of losing it because God said if you eat of this particular fruit in this day, in that day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you would die. Now, literally, what God says is dying you shall die. And, uh, and the Hebrew phrase translated in that day uh, often just means when. And so it's kind of like when I say, you know, when you eat too much, you'll get fat. But that doesn't mean that I think you're going to be obese the moment you eat too much, right? It takes time. And so when, when, when God said, in the day you eat of the, of the fruit, you will die, he wasn't saying you're going to keel over dead. In fact, a, a lot of traditionalists would point to that verse and say, hey, they did not die in that moment. 
So the death that God was requiring of them was something else. That the death that they died a spiritual death. They they were. I mean, I've taught this many times. They they were separated from God. But literally, that is not what the Hebrew says. It says, "Dying, you will die." And it's not saying in that moment. I mean, there was actually a demonstrative pronoun that they could have said in that day, meaning the very day you eat, you will die at that moment. Right? That's not what God was saying. He was saying that in the day you eat of the fruit, you you will die. The process of dying will begin for you. And, uh, and so he says to them, uh, as, a, as a consequence of their eating of the fruit, he said, to dust you shall return, right? Which that kind of tells us that, that God's punishment of death was what we know about death, right? That the, the cessation of life in, in the body. They would die because, um, because of their eating of the fruit. And then he evicts them from the garden, lest they eat of the tree, uh, was the tree of life, and live forever. And so he evicts them from the garden, lest they eat of the tree and live forever. So mankind fell into mortality. Now, whether he had immortality to start with, you know, I've thought about this a lot. You know, how, how did Adam and Eve have immortality? I mean, you know, they were, without sinning, how would they have had immortality? Was the immortality innately given to them? Or was the immortality related to that tree of life? Remember, because it had to be related to the tree of life, didn't it? Because God said, I've got to remove the tree of life, lest if they eat of the tree of life, they'll live forever. You know, we can't, he basically leaves that sentence just unfinished. It's like, it's too, it's too, too big of a thing, to, too negative of a thing to speak about. And, and, and so the tree of life, they're, they're more, they became, or their, their mortality was assured. And, and they began the process of dying when they ate of the fruit. So mankind fell into uh, to mortality. Paul would later say sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men. The Bible clearly says, however, that immortality was not lost forever. Immortality can be sought and granted. Romans chapter 2 verse 7. Now let's, where, does Rome, where is immortality found? Well, here's 2 Timothy chapter 1 verses 9 and 10. The grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So, so all of us die, all of us, you know, because of Adam's sin, they died and death spread to all of us, all of us died, but immortality and life were brought to us through the gospel. First Timothy, that's 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. For the perishable, this is 1 Corinthians 15, for the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable, the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? You see, that's very different than the biblical picture that traditionalists hold to, which is that all men are raised immortal to live forever. It just it seems to be totally contrary to that. At the resurrection, at the, Jesus is talking to the Sadducees, and they're talking about marriage and resurrection. You remember that story, the, the, the guys, uh, the, the woman marries this man, he dies, and she marries all the brothers, and they ask, you know, they're kind of joking, you know, because like, they didn't believe in the resurrection. So they're saying, at the resurrection, whose wife she's going to be? And remember what Jesus says? Here's what he says. Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry 
and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to the age and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry or are given in marriage. For they cannot even die anymore because they are like the angels and are the sons of God being sons of the resurrection. The implication in Jesus' answer to them is that, that men who are in Christ are raised to live forever, but the other men die and are banished. And, and so, one more thing, one more thing. So we get to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21. The beginning of the Bible, God banishes the tree of life. At the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 21 or 22, the tree of life returns. Because the tree, and, that, and that, to me, that's just representative of God giving eternal life to those who put their faith in Christ and only to those who put their faith in Christ. Um, I'm sorry, I got lots of notes and I'm trying to, I got too many notes, so. All right, I'm done with that. Okay, I'm done with that. All right, number three. The, the Bible's language of destruction. You know, the simplest and maybe the most profound argument for conditionalism or for conditional immortality, in other words, that immortality is something conditionally granted to us in Christ and not just innately all of ours, whether we're lost or saved, is that the Bible directly teaches that the lost will be destroyed. It's simply, I mean, it's just as simple as it sounds. Peter says that the reduction to ashes of Sodom and Gomorrah and the extinction of their inhabitants is an example, is an example of what awaits the ungodly. Second Peter chapter two, verse six. That's, that's a great verse, right? You ought to write that down. Second Peter chapter two, verse six. He similarly compares the future of the fiery destruction of the wicked to those who perished in Noah's flood. Second, uh, Second Peter chapter three, verse six and seven. Uh, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus says, Don't fear man who can kill your body, but fear God who can destroy both your body and your soul in hell. Don't fear man who can just kill your body. Fear God who can destroy both your body and the immaterial part of you in, uh, in hell. Now, the word destroy there is the Greek word apolemy, okay? And it consistently, everywhere in the Bible, that it's applied to a person when it's talking about, you know, um, when it's talking in the context of just everyday life, it means to slay or to kill them in every situation, right? And so that same word that God says, he says, don't fear man who can Apollomy your body. We all get that, right? I mean, he's, he's talking about killing the body like with a gun or a knife or chopping off its head or whatever, killing, killing the body. He says, don't fear people who kill. Fear, the, fear God who can destroy, Apollome, your, your body and your soul in, uh, in hell. And so the, the, you know, the words of the Bible just continually point to the destruction, to God's destruction of the wicked. Um. He elsewhere, he elsewhere tells us in a parable in which the weeds are burned up. Matthew chapter 13, verse 30. You know, and, uh, and the word there is the, is the Greek word katakayo, which means to completely burn up. And then when Jesus interprets this parable, he says the wicked are just like 
just like the shaft thrown into the fire in Katakayo and burned up. And, and this is, I don't know if y'all remember when we were going through Malachi, this is what God says in the Malachi prophecy, that evildoers would be reduced to ashes beneath the feet of the godly, and not a stub or a root would even be left to them. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 through 14, the narrow path leads to life, the broad road leads to destruction. And we've been trained either intentionally or unintentionally to overlook the plain meaning of some of the most famous Bible verses. Paul says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. God is juxtaposing death with eternal life, dying or living, okay? Uh, that's Romans 6.23. Um, uh, let's see... There are just all kinds of verses like this. Romans 5, 12 through 17. I already read that verse. It says, Adam, because of Adam's sin, death entered into the world. Death spread to all, all of men. Jesus said, uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten, only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John three sixteen. Again, the Greek apolemy word is used there. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10, it says, These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all those who believed for our testimony, uh, for our testimony to you was believed. Again, I, I quoted 2 Peter 2, 6, but I didn't really quote the verse, but it says, By turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. In my, in my estimation, I don't see how God could make it clear that the fate of the lost, the fate of the ungodly is extinction. It is their death. It is their annihilation. It is their destruction, not their eternal conscious torment. Overwhelmingly and pervasively, the language of death and destruction is used to describe the fate, uh, the final fate of the lost. Now, the fourth, the fourth and final um, foundation stone for, for, for conditionalism that I share with you is um, the, Bib the Bible's declaration of atonement. The Bible is very clear that those who reject the revelation of God um, will, will be judged and they'll have to pay the wages of their own sin. And the Bible is really, really clear that the wages of their sin is death. All orthodox views of atonement include this idea of substitution, that somehow or another Jesus substituted himself for us, that, that he, st he, he stood in for us, okay? And, and Jesus took the place of sinners, and he suffered what they suffered, um, uh, but he ultimately suffered death. And so as we go through our Bible, the thing that we see over and over and over again is that the atonement was the death of Christ. That's what the Bible always points to. It points to Jesus dying, not to his suffering. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus did suffer, okay? Jesus did suffer. But, you know, and there are, there are like four or five. We'll talk about them next, next Wednesday night. There are four or five verses that, that speak of, God's, of Jesus' suffering for us, okay? But in most of those cases, it's suffering that always leads, uh, always leads to death. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and then raised again. 2 Corinthians 5, 15, he, he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. Uh, it, it can't be more clearly stated than Peter does in his first letter, chapter 3, where it talks about Jesus was put to death in the flesh for us. In, our whole, in the whole entire Old Testament sacrificial system and the book of Hebrews is built on the death sacrifice, not the torment of the sacrificed animal. Nowhere in the Old Testament are they even told to ever sacrifice, I mean, to torment the animals before they were to be sacrificed in death, you know, as a substitute uh, provision for our sin. It was always the death, the Old Testament sacrificial system, and in the book of Hebrews, it's the death of Christ that's focused on as our atoning, as the atoning work of Jesus for our sin. Was suffering involved in the death of Jesus? Definitely. Listen to David Reagan. Here's, here's a statement that he makes uh, uh, with regard to a powerful, this powerful argument of atonement. He says, The fact that the Bible says that Jesus paid the price of our sins, Isaiah 53.5, Galatians 1.4, Hebrews 1.3, and 1 Peter 2.24, what was that price? It was extreme suffering followed by death. It was not eternal torment. Unrepentant sinners will therefore experience what Jesus experienced, suffering and death. Edward Fudge, he, he concurs. He writes, and I quote, The simple truth is that Jesus died. He was not tortured forever. Jesus' death for sinners does provide a window into the final judgment awaiting the lost. But the view through that window is one of suffering that ends in death, not one of everlasting conscious torment. Jesus suffered and died because he was bearing the sin of others. Unlike sinners, in hell he rose again because his own life was perfectly pleasing to the Father. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on this perfectly obedient Son of God. The Apostle Paul literally says Jesus died because of our sin and that he rose again because of our justification. And there's some verses in there. So it seems reasonable and scriptural to believe that the death of Jesus atones for our death, that the penalty of our sin is death, and Jesus' atoning work of dying was to pay for our death. Now, I've talked about this several times recently, and I'll, you, know, you may not have caught it, but all of us are going to die. It's appointed for every one of us to die. No, nobody gets off planet Earth alive. Isn't that a funny statement, right? Except if you happen to be here when Jesus comes. So we're all going to die. It's appointed to man once to die and then the judgment, right? And so at the judgment, we're all raised and we're judged. And those of us that are in Christ will receive all the benefits of being in Christ. What, what, those are benefits, we talked about them a couple of weeks ago. They were what? Adoption of sons. They're um, what did he say? Uh, an inheritance, uh, blamelessness and righteousness. All of those things are ours, right, in Christ. And we'll receive all of those things. And we'll be ushered into this new heaven and new earth that God is creating for us. But the wicked will be cast into the lake of fire, which we call Gehenna, which we call hell. And they'll be cast into the lake of fire. Um, but twice in Revelation, God tells us what the lake of fire is. And he says, the lake of fire, which is the second death. And, and, and so it just seems 
reasonable to see the scriptures as, um, it seems reasonable that Jesus' atonement was for our death. And he died for our death. And that was the atoning work of Christ. So that's my positive case for biblical uh, conditional immortality. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web at www.baconscastle.com.